1: Welcome back to Pod Save the World. My guest this week is Arwa Damon. She is a senior international correspondent based in Istanbul. She is one of the network's Middle East specialists. She frequently reports from conflict zones across the Middle East and North Africa and focuses a lot of her work on humanitarian stories. Arwa, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it.
2: No, it's my pleasure. Thank you.
1: The first thing I was hoping to talk about is Turkey and the U.S. relationship with Turkey. Turkey. Turkey is a member of NATO. It's an important ally of the United States and has been for a long time. And for a while, including early on in the Obama administration, when I was there, many people viewed Turkey as this important bridge between the East and West. It was seen as a potentially a hopeful moderating influence on the world. That quickly changed. And in April, President Erdogan declared himself the winner of a referendum that many say effectively moved Turkey from a democracy to a dictatorship. Can you talk about that steady erosion and what the referendum means in practice for the government and the people of Turkey?
2: I'll answer the second part of the question first. What this means for the Erdogan camp is that in their perspective, they have cemented him, the Egypt-type Erdogan himself, as being the man of the people who the people wanted to somehow keep in power for as long as possible because they believe in the message that he has been putting out there and because they believe, especially in these chaotic times, that perhaps sticking with the status quo is better than trying to shake things up. Those who oppose Erdogan are, of course, viewing this And they're terrified because from their perspective, it gives him and his government wide sweeping powers. There are even less checks and balances than there were in the past. And they are greatly concerned that he is going to be moving even more towards being an authoritarian leader. Now, how did we get to this point? We need to go back a few years to actually the Gizzy Park protests that happened that were on the surface about a park, but underneath all of it, it was really about a growing sense of discontent with the government, the sense that Erdogan, he was prime minister back then, his government was meddling a bit too much in people's lives. People were furious at things like his statement saying that women needed to have X amount of children. They felt as if he was really trying to uh, impose a much more conservative way of life on the population because remember, ever since the creation of modern day Turkey, the thing that it has prided itself on has been a pretty significant separation of religion and state. And as the situation escalated, and of course everything here has been compounded by the war in Syria, it's been compounded by the renewed violence between Turkey and the Kurdish separatist group, the PKK, all of this has sort of culminated into this massive boiling pot, plus you had the attack this past summer on the airport. Then you had the failed coup attempt has resulted in in Turkey being at a stage where it is hardly the country that many Turks themselves recognize it as being say 10 15 20 years ago
1: right so as a result of this referendum you know he has assumed wide control over the judiciary the ability to make law by decree abolish the office of the prime minister the parliamentary system do you think that this effectively moves him into the dictator camp and and how concerned are election observers and his opponents about accusations of fraud and ballot stuffing, and I guess some of the things short of fraud, like, you know, suppressing dissenting opinions in the course of the election.
2: The most pressing concern right now when you speak to Turks who do not necessarily uh, support the president is what they view as being arbitrary detentions that have been taking place for quite some time now, but following this failed coup attempt have really taken on an entirely new level. Tens of thousands of people have lost their jobs because they were accused of being affiliated with Fethullah Gulen, the cleric in self-imposed exile in the United States, whose movement, Turkey says, was Uh, behind this failed coup attempt. You have journalists being thrown behind bars accused of being Gulen sympathizers or PKK sympathizers. You do have uh, an atmosphere where people are to a certain degree afraid to speak out. Now, that being said, Tommy, though, it's important to note that at no point in its history did Turkey actually have a great track record when it came to freedom of the It has always been (laughs) among the top countries that has actually put journalists behind bars for a variety of reasons. I think people, yes, are concerned, especially his ardent opponents, that he is moving towards uh, perhaps some sort of dictatorial democracy. Because at the end of the day, no matter what the fraud allegations were, around half of this country does, in fact, support Him And support what he does and how he does it. But what it has done is really polarize a population that is, in essence, quite diverse and can hardly afford to fracture along all of these various different fault lines. Turks used to identify as being profoundly Turkish. And now they're having to redefine, perhaps, to a certain degree, what their identity is. And as we know in a region like this one, that can have repercussions that perhaps we don't see quite yet at this stage. And that's what frightens Turks. It frightens them that their economy is on a downward spiral when five, seven years ago, they were actually on the upswing. It frightens them when they don't necessarily, as some of them will even say, recognize themselves, their own countrymen, when they go out into the streets. The polarization frightens them. The instability frightens them because they've seen what's happened to their neighbors.
1: Ugh, sounds frighteningly familiar. <laughs> I mean, you as a journalist, I mean, I read that 179 television stations, newspapers, and other media outlets have been closed. How concerned are you as a journalist? How concerned are civil rights activists and opposition figures given the number of arrests that are occurring?
2: Very. Very. Uh, this is <laughs> right. probably when right. it comes to, you know, f- freedom of of the press, uh, one of perhaps the darkest times uh, in in Turkey's modern history. There have been very few crackdowns similar within, you know, Turkey to the ones that we've seen, at least not, you know, to my recollection at this stage. And the thing is, is because of the laws that have been passed, because the country is in a state of emergency, the government can effectively act with impunity and they justify everything in their minds as being part of this broader war on terror and yes there was a failed coup attempt ironically Erdogan went to the media to CNN Turk to get his message out and what was interesting what we saw back then though and this is also important to note because what's happening in Turkey is so phenomenally complex, the people, whether they supported Erdogan or not, went out to the, into the streets, And it is by and large because of that show of force we saw by a population that both supports and does not necessarily support the president, but supports the concept of democracy. That's why this coup failed. People mm-hmm. di- weren't out there because of Erdogan, per se. They were out there because there was no way they were going to let Turkey go back to that horrific era of one military coup after another.
1: Right. That was an, an extraordinary moment watching Erdogan essentially FaceTiming from, I'm not sure where he was, a plane, an undisclosed location, whatever, live on TV and, and directing people into the streets to with a show of force that essentially ended the coup that evening, Right.
2: Yeah, and people went out there, and that was the thing. When you spoke to people back then, you know, those who supported him went out, of course, for him. But even those who didn't support him, again, this is really important. Whether or not an individual in Turkey supports Erdogan, that does not mean that if they want him out of power, they want him out of power through violence or through a military coup. This country has been through right. that before. It knows what it looks like.
1: Right. So despite all of these issues and concerns... Last week, President Trump welcomed Erdogan into the Oval Office and and frankly offered him nothing but praise. They talked about our shared history of fighting communism, joint efforts to fight ISIS, improving trade relations. Did that surprise you, especially given tensions over the United States' decision to arm Kurdish fighters uh, that Turkey views as enemies and and given Erdogan's crackdown on dissent? I mean, I, I didn't hear any conversation at all about human rights or freedom of expression I'm wondering what Turkish people you talk to make of Trump's decision to invite Erdogan to the White House.
2: Well, it definitely was a top news story. And what was quite interesting, though, if you look at both of their statements, Trump and Erdogan's, they both allude to certain issues, but neither one of them addressed it. President Mm -hmm. Trump alluded to the war against terror. He alluded to the fact that, you know, they would be cutting more military deals. There would be greater cooperation moving forward. We actually heard a lot more from uh, President Erdogan in terms of what they want, because while President Trump referred to the PKK, he did not say anything about the U.S. support for the YPG. That is the Syrian Kurdish Uh, fighting force for people that don't know that America does not perceive as being a terrorist organization, but Turkey actually views the PKK and the YPG as being the same entity. So to boil it down, from Turkey's perspective, the government, and actually the vast majority of the population here, cannot understand how it is that the United States, which is meant to be a strong ally to Turkey, a fellow member of NATO, is actually choosing to back one of Turkey's Main enemies in the region, this Syrian Kurdish fighting force. President Erdogan had a fairly carefully worded statement um, in which he basically said that Turkey would not be able to accept any sort of future deal in the region that includes the YPG. Mm -hmm. So that main sticking point that exists between the two countries, it's still very much there. And I actually... I think a lot of people were breathing a sigh of relief that neither leader went off script. Interestingly, on the surface, the two actually have fairly similar personalities uh, in the sense that they puff their chests. They expect their word to be taken immediately at face value and not to be questioned. They both brush aside voices of the media that they feel are being too critical. So it's not entirely surprising either that the Trump White House and the president himself, who, mind you, also welcomed Egypt's leader, another country that has an atrocious human rights record, uh, to Washington. So it's it's two things. One, you have a White House that does not, so far, seem to be prioritizing things like human rights. And you have two leaders who are both volatile, fairly thin-skinned to a certain degree, prone to very quickly taking offense to things. And I think there was a a sigh of relief that the rhetoric didn't necessarily go off script, at least not publicly. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in the meetings that took place afterwards if they did try to iron out some of these details. Because if Turkey is going to expect the U.S. arming of the Syrian Kurds, to the degree that the U.S. wants to arm them, you can be pretty sure that Turkey is getting something in return, because President Erdogan then has to sell that to the Turkish population.
1: Right, right, and and I think the United States views those Kurdish groups as some of the most effective partners we have in against ISIS. And I'm not I'm not sure what could convince us to stop that that arming. Well, do you, here's do you have the thing any sense? too,
2: but they are the most effective group against ISIS that the U.S. is backing. But at the same time, let's not forget that the Syrian Kurds, at the beginning of the revolution, they were not immediately jumping on board, demanding for Assad to leave. In fact, the few voices of Kurdish uh, opposition that we heard to the Assad regime were in fact taken out by Kurdish groups themselves. There have never been any significant clashes between the Kurds and the Assad regime. So the Kurds may be on board when it comes to fighting ISIS, but they're not necessarily on board when it comes to fighting the regime, which, of course, is going to be another sticking point when it comes to Turkey, which has been supporting groups that have been actively fighting the regime So. When you try to unravel the intricacies of what's happening (laughs) in the Syrian battlefield, that piece of thread does not unravel because it is so deeply intertwined into so many other threads.
1: Yeah, it is not clean in any way. You're listening to Pod Save the World. Stick around. There's more great show coming your way. by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation.
3: Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan, backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM.
1: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Oh man, what would I do? Sleep would be nice. Yeah, yeah. Hang out with my daughter. I don't know. Take a nap, read a book. No, no, I wouldn't do a book. And I, listen, I wish I would pick book. Yeah, but uh, listen, we all wish we had another hour in a day. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Whoa. My therapist is trying to get me to be still for five minutes a day. So much harder than it sounds. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's too many videos to see. There will be a podcast in my ear. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com crookedworld crooked world. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P crooked world. Moving from one incredibly challenging conflict to another a related one, you're based in Istanbul, but you, you've covered a number of conflicts, including efforts by Iraqi forces to retake Mosul. Uh, Mosul is Iraq's second biggest city. It is strategic and historic significance, and Iraqi forces have spent you know about the last seven months trying to take it back after it fell to ISIS in 2014 in a, in a humiliating defeat for the Iraqi security forces. In 2016, you were with a convoy of Iraqi special forces that came under attack and you guys were pinned down uh, for more than 28 hours by ISIS fighters who were surrounding the house you were in. Can you tell us about that experience? And I would encourage everyone who wants to learn even more about it to watch your special documentary on CNN called Return to Mosul.
2: Yeah, it was um myself and cameraman uh Brice Lenin. And this was the first real push by the Iraqi counterterrorism forces into the city of Mosul itself. And we've been covering the battle for and the build up to it for months at that stage. And all of the intelligence has indicated that ISIS had moved most of its fighters to the western part of the city. And the convoy easily moved through the first two neighborhoods. It was a bit of what one would expect in terms of suspicious vehicles. There were a few pot shots, snipers, grenades. But then when the convoy got to the really narrow streets where you could barely turn a vehicle around, never mind an entire convoy, all of a sudden the firefight just significantly intensified. And very quickly something hit the very front, Humvee, the front armored vehicle of the convoy, and it exploded in a ball of flames, which meant that that road was shut off from the front. We could not move forward. And within minutes, a suicide car bomber had hit the very back vehicle of the convoy, which meant that there literally was no escape. Eventually, our vehicle took a direct hit, and that's when we stumbled out of it and spent... At that stage, the the next 24 hours or so, moving from civilian home to civilian home, eventually overnighting in one of these homes as the ISIS fighters closed in more and more on that particular position, because that's also where the bulk of the Iraqi counterterrorism forces were, who were running out of ammunition. We were with about 22 soldiers who were wounded, only six who were not they were hopping down stairs on one leg because they were shot in the other, firing out the kitchen window. There were grenades falling into the courtyard. The family that we overnighted with, who I'd really bonded uh, with because we spent so much time together. We spent the the longest amount of time. Then they were hiding under the stairway screaming, and I remember one of the little boys just saying, I don't want to die, and I was speaking to his grandmother, who's a family matriarch, this woman named Matar, and she said to me, I was like, you you can't make a run for it. You, You can't. She said, we have to because even if all of us don't get out, at least some of us will. And then an airstrike came in and took out the house right behind the one that we were hiding in because there were ISIS fighters on the roof that were getting ready to jump the wall. I think it's important, though, to mention that we don't think that ISIS knew that, you know, a CNN team was there. We think mm-hmm. that they were going after the soldiers because that same day there were similar ambushes along other points of the front line in Mosul, although none that lasted as long as uh, the one that we were in. But then, yeah, eventually backup came in, and we were lucky. You know, Brees and I, we were, we were able to get out.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is as frightening a 45-minute a documentary as I've ever seen. I, I can't imagine what it was like waiting for reinforcements to come in like that. But remarkably, you, know, you, you not only recorded that moment, but you recorded your decision to go back.
2: I've been through a lot of incidents pertaining to war. I've been in a lot of fights. I've been in a lot of situations where... Your, your heart's in your throat and, and, and you think that's it and I thought I had an appreciation for what it must have been like or what it is like for a civilian population I, think I had no idea what it was like what that yeah. level of fear feels like and to go back and think that for the Iraqi population that's their everyday life it, it gives you that much more of an understanding of what war is and it's so different to be there on the ground and live it than to hear it being talked about from seats of power.
1: Right. I mean yeah, I mean that's what I think is so remarkable about the piece you did is that I think we all are used to seeing the conflicts and actual fighting covered on the news and I have not lived that in any way shape or form but I'm familiar with, with watching it. I feel like there is there's significantly less coverage of what that day-to-day life is like for the people who can't leave and who can't get out. And you went back and you spent time with the soldiers that helped save you. And you spent time with a family that helped shelter you for those 28 hours. Can you talk about what it was like to go back and why you decided to return to Mosul once that section had been liberated?
2: You know, as you're asking me that question, I'm kind of getting goosebumps just remembering it. And I'm smiling a little bit because We went back for two reasons. One, we were going to go back regardless as as journalists. Uh, But secondly, it, it was personal. And the combination of that also allowed us an opportunity because of the relationship that we'd forged with the soldiers and the civilians to show exactly what it is that you're talking about, this side of war that it doesn't make it into the news stories per se, because... There's not enough time, or you miss the shot because the camera can't always be rolling all the time. And so to go back with the deliberate aim and goal of finding, first of all, everyone, because we didn't know who had survived or not, but also the most important thing for us was really humanizing what these people were going through, capturing those small moments, capturing this Infinite kindness and compassion that the Iraqi people have. And it was in shooting the Return to Mosul documentary that I had my moment where I all of a sudden realized why it was back in 2003 I fell in love with Iraq and with the Iraqi people. And it is because despite what they've been through, despite the oppression under Saddam Hussein, despite the U.S.-led invasion, the sectarian warfare, the, yes, violent tribal nature of the country, there is a purity to their kindness that is stunning. I mean, imagine a man who sheltered us briefly and the soldiers who had wounded troops being treated in his courtyard as his family was cowering behind a bookcase. What does he do? He makes everybody fried eggs. Because that's <laughs> Iraqi hospitality, and if you don't have your hospitality, what's left of you? The family that we sheltered with, and everyone who we met actually came running out when we went back, saying they were worried about us when we were the ones that actually got out. And then and then I, I, I found out that the, the last family we were with, Matar's family, she'd named her granddaughter after me. I mean... Who, who does that? It's just it's <laughs> stunning, and it's spectacular. But at the same time, you can't ever run away from the tragedy of it all, because then, of course, we found out that the house that was hit in the airstrike behind the one we were sheltering and also had civilian families in it that ISIS was holding at gunpoint and refused to allow to leave.
1: Right. Yeah, it was horrifying. I mean, one of the hardest parts about the piece for me to watch was when you were talking to children at a school and hearing about their experience through the eyes of these kids. I mean, a little girl was talking about seeing her father get lashed 50 times for having shorts on a little boy said to you how ISIS, when they controlled Mosul, they changed the curriculum. And instead of learning in books, they were given knives and taught how to slaughter people. I can't. How did you manage to have those conversations with these kids and and keep it together?
2: I mean, I have a great advantage in that, obviously, um, I speak Arabic. My my mom is Syrian, and I grew up completely bilingual. And um, I think it's almost a surreal experience because it's not just what they're saying it, but it's how they say it. You know, when, when, when an adult asks a group of children a question, the children will naturally try to outdo each other in, in their answers, right. except this time... They're trying to outdo each other in their answers of who's seen the worst thing. And uh. you, you then you speak to the teachers, I mean, just the, the psychological trauma of this population. And the thing is, is the kids that you see in school, to a certain degree, they're the ones that are on the spectrum of impact, if it can even be called that, they're a bit okay. Mm-hmm. You then have the other children, like the, the girl, the, the the daughter of one of the families we sheltered with, who still hears the voice of the ISIS fighter threatening to kill her, and her little brother who walks around with his plastic sword, clicking it in and out and mimicking the way the ISIS fighters marched the families out. Yeah. And, and and you look into the eyes of the children in those moments when you, you realize that they're mentally drifting back to what it is and they're not just trying to shout out sentences. And that's when yeah. you realize the monumental task this country has of making sure that they address what it is that these children have been through. Right. And right. Iraqis are anything if not capable of hiding their emotions. They're very good at that. These kids' parents are very good at that. But these children, they should not have to be very good at that.
0: You're
1: geeking out with me on Pod Save the World. More on the way.
2: Dental
3: Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan, backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental one
0: bacom slash offer slash SiriusXM. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the Leather Collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new Leather Collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at four ninety nine ninety nine dollars 99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.
2: You can live out your chef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.
1: The policy question for you. When the U.S. invaded Afghanistan and we later invaded Iraq, the exit strategy, to the extent that there was one, or at least that one was later developed, was to build up the capacity of the local government, to build up the capacity of local security forces, and transition control to them so that U.S. troops could leave. Obama obviously got all U.S. troops out of Iraq and ended up sending special forces and trainers back when things in Iraq deteriorated. Where do you think we are in that capacity building effort in Iraq? And is there a realistic time frame for the Iraqi security forces taking full control over the entire country?
2: I think that experience should teach us to not try to put timeframes onto these kinds of battle zones. Mm -hmm. I think one could very easily argue, and I do argue, that one of the key reasons why Iraq is the way it is, is not just because of the invasion. It's also because of the way that the Obama administration handled what happened in terms of the politics and backing Maliki for a second term. And this insistence of wanting to adhere to what was, yes, a leftover from the Bush era timeframe of withdrawal of U.S. troops, but also something that, as a journalist reporting in Iraq, was very frustrating for me and my colleagues. No matter who the administration was, there was almost a refusal to acknowledge reality. And when you refuse to acknowledge reality, you're not dealing with reality. It took America about a year and a half after the initial invasion, to even begin to accept the notion that, A, things were not going well, and B, we were about to head into not just a full-fledged insurgency, but a full-fledged sectarian civil war. It took until ISIS invaded Mosul... For the U.S. to acknowledge that perhaps the Iraqi security forces were not, as was the popular quote being touted around back then, capable of holding on to current security gains, whatever it is that that is supposed to mean. These accepted lower levels of violence that were deemed to be suitable. There is a naivete when it comes to U.S. policy vis-a-vis the Middle East, Afghanistan, that I still have very serious issues grappling with and grappling with the logic of why it is that administrations somehow do not want to accept, acknowledge realities on the ground in these countries. There's a very superficial understanding of the region that has proven to be detrimental time and time again.
1: Yeah, and I I guess making it even more complicated, even more difficult, you have, uh, you know, a neighbor in Syria that is has no control over most of the territory in the government that's been in the grips of a horrific civil war. Uh, it's filled with ISIS fighters and leading to war instability. I mean, do you think that Iraq can be solved with Syria in the situation it's in? And I'd like to talk about some of your coverage of, of refugees trying to flee Syria and, and get to places like Europe.
2: I, That's a tough one. I think to a certain degree, aspects of Iraq can be resolved with Syria still ongoing. I think there is a very small window of opportunity for the Iraqi security forces and al-Abadi's predominantly Shia government to prove themselves to the population of Mosul and to the Sunni population that they are not former prime minister- Maliki, and that the security forces and the Iraqi government are not going to now turn around and arbitrarily begin the mass detentions, the oppression of the Sunni population that so aggravated the Sunni population that was one of the main elements why ISI, the Islamic state of Iraq, which is what ISIS was before it became ISIS, was able to reemerge and then become ISIS again. Iraqis have a fundamental rejection of foreigners ruling them no matter who it is. Let's not forget, Iraq's Sunni population turned on al-Qaeda in Iraq and basically helped the Americans defeat them to a certain degree. Al-Qaeda in Iraq, the Islamic State in Iraq, were then able to reemerge because of an Iraqi governmental failure that I would argue also the U.S. had a hand in um, allowing to unfold and proceed it the way it did if iraq is able to control most of iraq it probably does have a window of opportunity to do that there's going to be the next phase of how are they going to reconcile with the kurds the kurds have now drawn their lines in the sand they have solid control over kirkuk and its oil fields they've basically drawn the border of iraqi kurdistan to where they want it to be And the Peshmerga has proven to be quite an effective fighting force. And many people are concerned about that being the next battle. And that's not even getting into all of the potential spillover dynamics from Syria.
1: This does not get less complicated, that is for damn sure. If if ISIS is defeated, when ISIS is defeated, uh, you still have massive political challenges. You have a country that's kind of cobbled together of different groups. It's going to take a long time. Okay. Again, what I love about your reporting is that you know, you've know you covered these conflicts. You understand the dynamics at play. But it's not just that you're covering the conflict in Iraq or Syria, but you're covering the human beings trying to flee Syria and escape the violence. Can you talk about why you've focused so much on these stories and what it's been like for you when you're traveling with these men, women, children who are trying to get to Europe, trying to get to Turkey or Greece? Because we hear so much about terrorism. We hear so much about ISIS and Assad that you know, I want to do what I can to raise up reports like yours that focus on the individuals who are suffering so that we view refugees as much through that lens as we do all the security discussions that you see on
2: TV. And you know, there's two points that, that I would love for people to actually you know, to bear with me on. One is that those masses of refugees that we saw making the journey to Europe, they are not the poorest of the poor. The poorest of the poor cannot afford the money it costs to get to Europe. Those are people who more or less had middle-class lives. They had jobs. They were dentists. They were electricians. They were graduate students. They were girls who loved getting their hair done and dragged their fluffy poodle across Europe with them. That is how humiliated mostly the Syrian population, because the vast majority of them were Syrian, had become to the point where they were degrading themselves to that. A lot of people on the refugee trial didn't want to be filmed, not necessarily because they were afraid of endangering the lives of people back home, which is what we usually hear when someone doesn't want to go on camera, but because they didn't want their friends and loved ones to see them like that. I have covered war over and over and over again, but covering the refugee trail punched me in a very different degree that actually surprised me. Because when you're in a war zone, you expect certain questions. You expect questions of why does nobody care? Why will no one stop the bombs? Why are they letting this happen to us? And there are never questions that we can necessarily answer. But to hear those same questions being asked in Europe – that was meant to be a dream, a safety, a sanctuary, a place of dignity, to hear people wanting to know why borders were shutting in their faces or why they were being left for two days under the sun without water, which is what was happening in the initial days, or why no one wanted to understand that they didn't leave their homes because they wanted to leave their homes and invade Europe. They want nothing more than to go back home. They left their homes because they didn't have a choice. And to still not be able to answer those questions, it was one of the most painful things I've ever had to cover.
1: I can't imagine. I mean, even just sort of viewing the sort of callousness of the conversation, the lack of empathy in the U.S. political system, the way it's sort of reflected back, I can't imagine the message that sends to a family or a kid or what it means to their how they will view the United States in perpetuity uh, when when they see those things in those conversations and debates when they, given the situation they're in. I mean, do you do you hear people talk about that?
2: First of all, we should also point out that the U.S. when it comes to refugees takes a drop in the bucket of what is actually yep. out there. They go through a much more extreme vetting system to get to America than they do to get to any other country. And do you know? Despite the fact that many people actually feel America has, at least politically speaking, failed them and betrayed them, they still have faith in the American dream, and they still would give anything to be able to have America save them. But that aside, the other problem is that we all have had a point in time in our lives when we have been at rock bottom, when we've been down, and we've been kicked, And we've felt that anger or a certain degree of anger, a certain degree of rage. And when you're in that state of mind, amplified to a degree that you can't even imagine it because that's what it's like for a refugee that has lost someone who they love, their homeland, seen it all disintegrate as global superpowers, debated back and forth in some twisted game of chess, their fate. When you're that low... Imagine the difference of having someone reach out a hand to lift you up and how that can change your narrative. And imagine the difference of someone shutting a door in your face and what that then does to your psyche. It's not just about doing it for the right reasons, the right reasons being that we're all human beings and we should be looking out for each other. It's also because, logically speaking, why do we want more hatred out there?
1: Right. Yeah, there's a strategic imperative to, I think, showing kindness and empathy and... and and people, human think
2: I'm, people think I'm naive for saying this in terms of like, I actually think it should be part of a foreign policy to show compassion and kindness and offer a different alternative and a different narrative to what it is that the so-called evil side is putting out there.
1: I agree with you. And, and what's interesting about what you've done is you've, you've done this reporting and told these stories. And I think that is an important piece of helping Americans understand The suffering and creating empathy. But you didn't stop there. You created a nonprofit organization called Inara, the International Network for Aid, Relief, and Assistance that provides medical assistance to kids who are wounded in conflicts. Can you tell us about the organization and how people listening can support the work you guys are doing and and why you thought it was necessary?
2: You know, the the story of Inara actually starts back in 2007 in Iraq when I met a little boy named Yusuf that um, some of the people listening, uh, if they have watched CNN, might remember, but he was five years old at the time, and masked men had, for n- reasons that are still unknown, thrown gasoline on him and set him on fire when he was standing in Jesus front of his Christ. Home. It, it makes your hair stand on end. When he came to our CNN bureau, his face had hardened into these rivers of scar tissue, and he was eating rice one grain at a time, and he was so angry. He couldn't really articulate his emotions, but he was so angry. We did the story, and the outpouring of support was overwhelming. Millions of CNN viewers responded, donated money to the Children's Burn Foundation in Los Angeles that took on his case. And I, I traveled with the family to Los Angeles and kind of watched this transformation from the first moment that, He went to the beach and saw water for the first time and was able to laugh and play and began getting surgeries to the young man that he's become today. Either way, seeing the response to Yusuf made me realize that no matter how cynical I am or I may get, There is great kindness out there, and there is something called the compassion of strangers that somehow needs to be tapped into, and there are children like Yusuf, who are falling through the cracks for whatever reason, because it took his father about seven months to find CNN, and he'd gone to various different aid organizations. And as the years dragged on, and then as the war in Syria began, and we really saw with Syria the impact of journalism beginning to change, Because no matter what we did or the risks we took to report, it somehow felt as if the impact of it was being diluted. And you reach a point where having seen the need, having had an idea of something that could work, an almost visceral desire to do something more because the journalism isn't enough, that's when I reached that point that I decided to create this organization, Inada that brings everything together. It brings those who want to help with the organizations that can help with the cases that need help. But we don't do anything that another organization already does. In that instance, we refer our cases on. We do the cases that don't fall within other organizations' mandates or that other organizations simply cannot do or where there isn't an organization that perhaps focuses on that. And we focus very much on war wounded or children or children that are wounded because of the circumstances brought on by war. So refugee children falling into a pot of boiling water, having their tents burned down, offering alternatives to you know, a teenage boy who will never walk again on his own because he has a bullet in his spine, but with physiotherapy and with braces, he can begin to be more independent. We cover a variety of, of different cases, and we're small, but... You see how these children's lives are changing, and we're changing the narrative. And it goes back to what we were discussing earlier. Yusuf, that little boy from Iraq, he doesn't remember the attack anymore. He doesn't have his own memories of it. He knows it happened, but it's not his life-defining moment in the sense that he's not angry what he remembers is people being nice to him and he wants to be a doctor and he wants to give back to his community. We look at the children who were helping. We look at their families and the sheer relief of just having a phone number to call someone on the other end. The impact goes far beyond just the medical treatment of, of these kids. And I honestly truly believe that we owe it to these children We, as adults, as governments, as societies that are meant to protect children, we failed. This is the least that we can do. Um, And so, you know, there's obviously a number of ways to help. I mean, people can donate. That's fantastic Um, via our website, uh, www.inara.org. But also, a small number of people have been doing this for us, and it works really well. You know, you can run a race to raise money. Some people have... Uh, done yoga classes, they've organized small comedy events, they've organized uh, small other sorts of events like bands playing, small-scale music concerts. Spreading the word is incredibly important at this stage to about not just the work that we're doing, but when you start talking about the work that we're doing, the conversation then opens itself up to why is this work needed? We need to start talking more in very basic terms about what's happening around the world and especially in the Middle East, because we need to start listening to each other. We need to start understanding each other back on that very basic human level.
1: I agree. Arwa Damon, thank you so much for your incredible reporting and the work you're doing at Anara. Um, everyone should check out the website. Consider supporting your efforts um, because I agree it's important, and I think that there are there are benefits to the children uh, that you're helping, but there are also benefits, I think, to the, to the United States, to the entire world, by you know showing some compassion and, and reaching out and helping people the way you do. So, thank you again for for being on the show today.
2: Thank you so much. I appreciate it.